We welcome you to the Hirshhorn. I'm Kelly Gordon. I'm associate curator here. And the curator for directions, John Gerard, which is on view through May 31st. John's talk is part of several events tonight. First, it's part of our ongoing Meet the Artist series, led by Malena Kalinowska, managed by Jenny Leahy, with tech support tonight from Sarah Gordon and Ron Toole. And special support for tonight's program comes from Fred Ognebeni. Thank you, guys. Secondly, it's part of a touchstone for the Colloquium of New Media Preservation that our contract conservationist Jeff Martin has been spearheading in collaboration with an interest Smithsonian committee and our chief curator and director, chief, excuse me, chief conservator and director for collections management, Susan Lake. Thanks for your cooperation and welcome all colloquial um, participants. Third, this event is part of the Environmental Film Festival. John's work, in my mind, is reimagining landscape. But he also uses the poetry of visual imagery to call attention to the impact that mankind has had on the actual landscape. A recent London Times article called John an apocalyptic visionary, and we applaud the Environmental Film Festival for helping educate all of us on how to avoid an apocalypse. Finally, this occasion is a celebration of the Hirshhorn's commitment to collect and exhibit recent art and new media. In this regard, I'd like to thank our board, including people like Barbara and Aaron Levine and Dan and Elizabeth Salick, for their encouraging support. Also, I'd like to thank our director, Richard Kishalik, for keeping this part of his vision. And I would especially like to thank our chief curator and deputy director, Carrie Brower, for guiding the Hirshhorn to take a leadership role in preserving, presenting, and collecting new media work in Washington. So that's how this came to be. Let me tell you a little bit about why. To describe our interface with John over the past year, in the least would be to say that it's been wild and surreal. Only 12 months ago, I rediscovered his work. I'd seen, a, seen it once in a group show, and it stayed in my mind, but I didn't follow up. But then when I saw his name again in a uh, review, I tracked it down to dual gallery exhibitions in New York this time last year, one of which was at Simon Preston's gallery, and Simon Preston is with us tonight. Then, this summer, John had a major installation at the Venice Biennale on the Isle of Certosa. He was also included in a legendary art show organized by Axel von Vort at the Palazzo Fortuni, also part of the Venice Biennale. And he comes to us fresh from an installation at the Canary Wharf Metro in London, which he'll tell us about. John was born in Dublin in 1974, studied sculpture at Oxford, and received an MFA at the Art Institute of Chicago, and now lives and works in Dublin and Vienna. I ask you to join me in applause and welcome for my favorite apocalyptic visionary, John Gerard. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, it's very nice to be here. Um, thank you to Kelly Gordon for bringing me here um, in the first place to do the Direction Show, which has been a really great pleasure and an honor. Also to Kerry Brower for supporting that, and to the Hirshhorn generally, and the director, um, Richard Kajshek, uh for supporting this, this, this event. 
Um, so I, in a sense, the Smithsonian and the Hirshhorn is, 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 a, is a historical setting. So I've uh, orientated this presentation in that regard. So I'm actually going back in time to earlier works to contextualize the direction show and also um, showing some works in progress. That'll be towards the end of the, of the, uh, the presentation. Um, and I'm starting with the work which is uh, completely unvirtual, but is very important in my thinking and in my process. And this is a piece called Dark Portrait Chris. Um, it's, a, it's a straight photograph. And um, what it is, is a, uh, a room which I sealed completely from light and sat a group of, of kids, basically, teenagers within it, and some, some younger, and then just talked to them in quite an open way about um, you know, ideas of, of, of the infinite, ideas of uncertainty, the future, and asked them to really look into complete darkness. The room really was absolutely inky black, and they asked, asked them to really sort of look into that void, essentially. So what you're seeing is after 10 or 15 minutes, the pupils have opened up to their greatest extent. And actually, interestingly, the, um, the pup this is a detail of that work. The eyes actually need a subject to stay looking forward. Without a subject, they begin to drift off in different directions, which is quite uncomfortable. So the kids got this slightly strange look. I, I, I took the picture by kicking off a flash, which captured um, this expression of looking into nothing. And uh, it was one of a series of six. This is um, Jack and Hazel and Sophie, <laughs> who for some reason in absolute pitch darkness was laughing. So, um, <laughs> so that's encouraging. Um, but, um, and here they are installed, four of them installed in, in an important first show for me in the Royal Hibernian Academy in Dublin in 2006. They were printed at life size and uh, you could sort of develop a relationship with this sort of, this strange uh, vacant expression. Uh, now simultaneously in that exhibition was a work called Smoke Tree. This is Smoke Tree uh, based, this is a series called Smoke Tree and it's this one's actually based on an ash tree near where I grew up. Now this work is really uh, in a sense a, a previous body of work to what you're seeing here in the, in the um, Hirshhorn and it has some fantastical elements that I struggle with a little bit but I think that artists are allowed to um, shift around in terms of their opinions of the work they've previously made. So it was installed in a very, very large scale. This, is, this looks a little smaller here, but it's about 700 square meters space. And um, I've actually got the work installed here. We should be able to see it if I go the right direction. And um, it's called a smoke tree um, for fairly obvious reasons in that the foliage has been replaced by virtual smoke, and uh, one can look around it. I have a turn sensor here. I'm going to look around this as a sort of a virtual sculpture, essentially. And this piece, um, this series, I suppose was some of the first works that kind of came to people's attention. And people really love them, it's curious. <laughs> They're slightly, I think they have a slightly funereal quality. Um, and it was the first time that um, I also put put in an orbit of a day. So the sun rises on this piece and travels over, actually I might even be able to simulate it, 
it travels over the, the scene and then um, it goes down, becomes nighttime. So you can see this in super, super top speed, which you not normally, would not normally be able to see. Whoops, there goes the moon. Um, so anyway, that's the smoke tree works. But one of the reasons I actually show you that work is because it's also during the research for that piece of work that I came across an image which has been incredibly important to me ever since. And um, that image is this one, which is, that's the title of the work, Smoke Tree Ash. So this is a really a defining image of the last years for me, and it's um, an image from April 14th, 1935, um, which is famously known as Black Sunday, which is a kind of an iconic event of, of the Dust Bowl period. And I came across this image online when I was trying to find resources to create you know, explosions and dust and this kinds of things for these smoke tree works. And, um, uh, I was absolutely taken by this image, so I did a lot of research as to where it was and found the original in um, the University of Texas at Austin. Um, so a couple of months after discovering the image, I got on a plane and flew to Austin to actually go and, and, and just connect with the original. I thought it would be interesting and important to actually see the original of this image that I just really couldn't kind of get out of my system. It had this strange apocalyptic quality. So when I actually got to Austin, um, I found this, I was, it's called the Center for American History and they have these wonderful boxes with um, you know, these extraordinary historical images, the originals, and on the back of the image, that image, was this wonderful phrase which said, dust storm at Stratford, Texas, April 14th, 1935, 5.45 p.m., lasting 45 minutes, the darkest dark I ever experienced. And that also was a kind of an interesting idea, the darkest dark, you know, that darkness had gradients. And, um, and I also found an accompanying image in the same archive, which was the same storm, but in Springfield, Texas, which is about sort of 50 miles down the road from, from the previous image. Um, so I made friends with a couple of um, kids in Austin. This is one of them, rather glamorous assistant, and we borrowed her mom's car, and uh, we took off and drove like 1,500 miles across Texas in one day, which was quite, an, to get to this place, I thought I should really go visit this place as it is now. And what did I, I wanted to see what was on that landscape now, what was on that, that uh, outside Stratford, outside Dalhart, these, this, this epicenter of the Dust Bowl, uh, what was there now. So this is me, uh, it, it was, we, we got, after driving all day, to I think Stratford, which is now obviously more built up, stayed the night and at dawn the next day started to photograph the landscape. <laughs> And, um, you know, I'm basically out on the Texan landscape. It's got panhandle area, so you've got Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, all tightly bunched in that area. And it's, a lot of the area has never recovered from the Dust Bowl. I mean, I don't really need to tell an American audience what the Dust Bowl was, but uh, certainly a European audience is not so familiar with it. So it is, of course, the, uh, the, the, the tragedy that occurred when 100 million acres of this area were plowed post-World War I to um, sow wheat and uh, resulting in, in, you know, following a drought, all of the topsoil, majority of the topsoil blowing away, which is still to this day the worst environmental catastrophe in American history. And I read it more, less in terms of its human cost and more in terms of um, 
this symptom of a surge of power, you know, a surge of power from petroleum, the discovery of petroleum, which was directed towards the landscape. So the 20th century, in a sense, is bookended by you know, these, these extraordinary catastrophes. One is the Dust Bowl, and the other, in a sense, is still, I mean, in the form of global warming, is still developing. It's a storm that's still forming. Um, so part of the process of, of making the works that I make um, is that one has to document everything in great detail. You become a kind of a slow scanner on the landscape. Um, and in this instance, I found a site near Dalhart, um, which is called Grice Farm, which I decided would be the focus of this dust storm piece. And this is Mr. and Mrs. Grice who own this area and have farmed it through the Dust Bowl to this day. And, uh, you know, interesting, you've got a lot of historical remnants. This is in a cafe saying President F. Roosevelt signing Social Security Act 1933. You know, so it's still the resonance of the 30s and just that tragedy of the Dust Bowl and um, amplified, of course, by the Great Depression. And um, so returning to Vienna, I continued to research, you know, what, I only had one image, I only had that black and white image of the dust storm. So I began to do a lot of, of research online and try and connect with dust storms. And actually, interestingly, the majority of my resources I found had been shot by, because I only had a still image, I needed a moving image to remake the storm. Um, and the majority of the images had been taken by American soldiers in Iraq. So this is a dust star, sa dust star sandstorm, or perhaps both, um, in a, an army base, rolling in on an army base in Iraq. And it's pretty extraordinary, I think. And this is very much what they look like on the American landscape. And there's also moving images. If you Google Iraq dust storm, you can find moving images of this storm which rolled in. So the, the notion was that I would, um, I would uh, remake the landscape as it is now and remake the storm as it was then, but obviously, um, you know, using, it, there's a lot of documentation as to its color, it traveled over certain colored earth and these kinds of things. So this is a Google Earth, um, our Google Maps, just giving the, the, the landscape which I was working on in Texas. And this is Grice Farm. So this gives the colors on the layout of the landscape. So we use that. That's our first step. And then we um, very laboriously, over about a year, rebuild everything in the scene. So you can see the, the fence posts. You can see the, the um, wind, um, wind um, uh, windmill. And this is the storm remade as a virtual, a virtual object. Uh, a sort of storm as sculpture. So it's a contemporary landscape and this historical remake. And this is the work that, of course, is um, upstairs in directions. And um, so you all have to go look at it if you haven't seen it yet. I'm not going to show it to you here. Uh, it would make it too easy. And this is Grice Farm as a virtual representation or portrait of as it was. Um, now that piece, very uh, fortuitously, was uh, I discussed it with a wonderful curator called Linda Norden, who um, was in Chicago at that time, and I happened to meet her. And she, in a slightly extraordinary gesture, I was in the midst of making the work. She explained that she was curating an exhibition in Marion Goodman Gallery called Equal That Is to the Real Itself. And she asked me if I could get it finished in two months and put it in that show. 
And for a young artist to sort of be slightly offhandedly asked to put a work in Marion Goodman Gallery is quite something. Um, so I said, yeah, of course I'm going to get it finished. So we, this is the object installed in this wonderful show that she put on, which sort of interrogated the nature of the real, in a sense, with pretty much a tick list of every artist hero that I have. So um, there was the work of Pierre Houig, his Snow White work and also Charles Ray, and in the other room there was um, Ronnie Horn and a Bruce Nauman work, and it was quite an extraordinary exhibition, and also a wonderful thing for me to be included in it. So, and actually at the opening of the Marion Goodman show, I met the director of the Donald Judd Foundation, and she said, you have got to get to Marfa, because <laughs> um, I'd never been, and of course you've got that whole sort of you know, Texan and Judd legacy from Texas. But also, I suppose, the formal realization of the object, which you can see here. This is a sculptural object which houses a computer and a screen and allows you to look around the storm, which is a component that you don't have here. The objects allow one to look around the scenes. So this is a slightly Judd, I suppose. I mean, I, I, I acknowledge a kind of a Judd reference in the object, in a sense. Um, so I did go to Marfa, as you can see, and particularly to see the Ronnie Horn work there, um, which is uh, Things That Happen Again for This and That 1986, which is a wonderful piece. And of course, for Judd's extraordinary um, work, um, 100 Untitled Works in Mill and Aluminium, 82 to 86. So I suppose, in a sense, sensitized by these types of things, I left Marfa and drove back towards Albuquerque to fly back to Europe. And on the landscape, um, outside of Marfa, it was this incredible scene, which is a, a thing called a grow finish unit. And um, I think I've made the relationship quite obvious here, uh, serial objects on the landscape, but um, this incredible production unit, um, which in a way, you know, seemed to very much extend some of the discussions of Judd um, and his sort of, sort of formality in a way, but obviously undercut perhaps by some of the sort of sort of bodily references that he, he seemed to deny. Certainly that was a critique from Felix Gonzalez Torres. Um, so I came across this incredible scene, which is a computer-controlled pig production unit called a grow finish unit, which pumps the waste. This is the images I took at that time. Behind the, this, you know, here it is from the, from the front. And behind you have these incredible effluent lakes where they pump the waste from 10,000 pigs onto the landscape. And uh, I think it looks like sort of a holiday home at the, you know, at the end of the world. You know, it's like the most hellish sort of beach house you could possibly imagine. But I became quite fascinated. This huge storm rolled in and I became quite fascinated by this building. And I actually went back to Europe, couldn't quite forget it, and went back again to document the scene really in great detail. Um, so once again, using Google Earth as a kind of a scanner, you can see that you have irrigated cornfields here, and these pig production units, there's 5,000 of them in this area, are tucked around each corner where the irrigation arm can't reach. So there's these circles, and you can see them. This all, each one of these has up to 5,000 to 10,000 pigs, so it's got a lot of pigs. Um, and it's sort of basically where biomass in the form of corn is transformed into protein, which powers the cities. So. I took multiple photographs of these scenes and I worked with a group of four, um, a modeler, Daniel Felsner, and a, a programmer, um, Helmut Bressler, and a wonderful producer who's been my long-term collaborator, Werner Putzelberger. 
And so they began to model these places as 3D models. And then you know, these are the first basic steps of modeling these scenes. And then the next step is we take the, and this is actually a sow farm, this is a little later, but I'm just using it to illustrate. We take the images themselves and we lay the photographs back on the 3D model, so you get what you can think of as a sculptural photograph. Um, and then the final step is that we actually bring the work into a, uh, what's called a gaming engine and uh, we allow it to, in a sense, come to life. And I have one running here, which is, um, let me get this correct. So this is um, Grove Finish Unit Eva, Oklahoma, 2008, and it is the first of the Grove Finish Units, which uh, is actually on exhibition upstairs. And, um, it has actually been also been acquired by the Hirschhorn for the permanent collection, which is wonderful. Um, and in this work, there is a full year embedded in the work. So the sun comes up in this scene, travels over, and then goes down, um, and it becomes nighttime. And all these dynamics are built in. So it's a sort of an, a solar orbit is accurate over the over the year. And because the grow finish process is an eight month process, we reference that by bringing a fleet of virtual trucks in every eight months to wait in front of each building for an hour as a sort of symbolic moment of exchange. Um, but you can see this in more detail, as I said, upstairs. So, um, I'm also going to show you the sow farm work, which is going to take a moment to start. You have to bear with me while I start this. And the South Farm work is, um, I make these pieces in series because it really takes such an incredible amount of time to make one, maybe six to eight months. Um, and each time you finish one, you always feel that you actually really could um, bring, 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 the, bring the piece forward in a sense, or bring the realization of the piece forward. So we're now on our um, third of these Grow Finish series um, and the grow finish units have housed pigs that have been fattened but the sow farms which are nearby are where the piglets are actually um, generated through you know through sort of a lot of intervention actually so the sow farm is actually currently on exhibition in a gallery in London called Thomas Dane which is my first exhibition in London and I've got it running here in about two minutes so you just have to bear with me while this starts up What differentiates the, 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 the sow farm from the grow finish units is uh, they're much larger, much squatter, they're connected together, and um, there's a much greater level of human interaction because um, obviously those sows are farrowing and producing piglets. So I'm going to let this guy turn a little bit so you can see it when it gets around the front. It'll take a few minutes. Um, I did walk around it and took multiple photographs, but then it's completely rebuilt. So it's a portrait of this place. And what you're seeing is a, vir right now, what you're seeing is a virtual camera that's moving around the scene. And there's a computer here that's making this scene at about 60 to 70 frames per second. So it's, it's a real time 
scene, essentially, which is post-cinematic. There is no timeline. There is no frames, you know, prescribed frames. Obviously, it's a frame-based, it's an image, like any other image, but um, each one is produced, creates the image, and then is discarded. So it's not a film in that sense. It's something new. So... Um, Well, there is no expectation for any human presence on this landscape. Um, so they're unfenced. And is that me? Uh, they're unfenced and there is no security. Um, I parked my car and walked in. I mean, I had no interest to enter these sites, but I was interested to document them. And I, was, I met one person once who was a, um, I, I presumed from his appearance, a Mexican-American um, laborer, essentially, and he was completely shocked and terrified to see me and sort of, you know, just told me, you really shouldn't be here, and then sped off in a truck, and I was like, yeah. that actually fed into the next work I'm going to show you in a minute. So this is the South Farm, um, and if you want to see it, you better get to London, where it closes on March 25th, um, and I'll swap back one second. So, but you can see the distinction between the growth finish unit, which is upstairs. Uh, and it, in a sense, I also think it's interesting just simply to make a portrait of these places. I think of them as sort of functioning ruins in a way. And I don't think they're, they're very long. They won't survive very long. So I think it's very interesting to record them very carefully now. Um, and the camera moves at just below walking pace, just in case you're wondering. So that is South Farm near Libby, Oklahoma, 2009. And that's the work installed as a freestanding wall in Thomas Dane Gallery in London. Um, and that's another scene. It's a quite an interesting sort of Edwardian space. So it's a sort of an interesting interrelationship historically between the, the extremely modern and the historical. So of course, on the landscape in this area, you have a mix of, of, of things. You've got corn, you've got these pig production units, but you also have oil pumps that almost look like relics. You know, they sort of look out of time and out of place. And in a sense, they are, because the American landscape was almost completely depleted by the 70s. So these are just the last remnants of the oil boom in America. And I think they actually kind of know it in a way. They sort of feel a little sort of pathetic. But, um, and this is my partner, Cesar, and he typically drives me around the place, which is very nice of him. And you see the scale of them, they're huge. This is called Lufkin, and this is what titles the work. This is called Sentry, and this is the work that's actually upstairs in the, in the show in, in, in Directions. This is the second of the oil pumps that I remade, and this is the third, which is also in the show on Thomas Dane. So this one particularly is raised on a hill, and, um, it has a very particular kind of curious devotional quality, this piece, I think. Um, in the, also the century does as well, but this, because of its height above the landscape, has a strange sort of totemic type feel. And I'm going to um, show it to you in a minute when this guy gets started. It takes a minute or two. Um, so, of course, once again, uh, the process involves sending thousands, a couple of thousand pictures back to Vienna, and the modeler begins to make this model, which you can see is very detailed, and it's really a portrait of this, of this object. And um, after several months of modeling, it gets handed over to the producer who weaves this whole story together. And um, once I stop this spinning around, like, 
I'll show it to you. And this is a brand new work which has just um, been um, installed in London. Um, so you normally would not move around it so fast, but I'm just doing this so you can see it. So as you can see, we actually extended the work in this case because we used um, topographical data from the landscape to get the actual layout of the landscape. And, um, and we placed it on this hill high up above the landscape, as you can see, with a river valley running behind. And as, um, as in all the works, you have the orbit of the year um, built in. And in a sense, perhaps the work speaks as much about the orbit of the sun, which is where the energy which this draws up, this pump draws up, of course, is derived as it is about anything else. So it's a, a work of multiple orbits, as is the sentry work. You've, you have a walking orbit around it, you've got this pumping orbit, and then you've got the, the orbit of the sun, which, um, which I'm sort of... I'm, I'm, I'm sort of drawn to in a sense. Um, and that is Lufkin, which once again, if you want to see it, you have to get to London quickly. So, um, I'm just gonna, sorry, I've got so many things I'm supposed to be doing here. Uh, I feel a little bit like a DJ. Um, so, uh, a pretty bad DJ. Um, this is the work installed at a small scale in Thomastain, as once again as a projection with a orbiting camera at just below walking pace. This is actually an installation I was very pleased with, the two-room installation. Um, now, moving back towards the photographic, um, this is a series um, which is titled uh, Figure Blocking Sun, and it's actually my partner, um, and it's a simple conceit in a way. I, I drop down low and I take a picture of him with his head in front of the sun, which he's facing us, but it makes a perfect silhouette which drops away. And uh, I quite like this idea that we, we must conceive of, of you know, the, it, a silhouette is interesting because it's sort of, it, it has two faces. It's a surface, but also a, sort of a void in a way. And I think it's it sort of, for me, it relates to this idea of the infinite, that the infinite is essentially untestable. So we must consciously imagine it. You know, it's a thesis, essentially. And I like to play with that idea through these works, these figure-blocking sun pieces. These are just straight, unmanipulated photographs. But the reason I show them to you is because they actually are very important, along with the dark portraits, which obviously you've got figures sitting in, the sun, uh, sitting in complete darkness. And this is a relationship to those dark portrait works, which we started with. But this piece very much undercut the oil stick work piece, which I'm going to tell you about, which um, relates to this building on the landscape. And this is a, a corn silo, which just in and of itself is such a kind of, a, it's such a pleasurable building. That's why I stopped the car and documented it. And then in a, I developed a, 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 a work, which um, I had to get a stand in for the terrified um, guy on the American landscape, told me to get off the pig production unit. And this was this charming builder in um, New York called Angela Martinez. And we explained the project. He works with Simon Preston. And I said, you know, I, I need a stand in for this guy I met in the landscape. And he said, sure. So um, he became a laborer, sort of an everyman in this piece called Oil stick work. And here he is having his portrait taken at work as a painter. And it became what's called holistic work, which is this piece in which a virtual laborer 
paints that structure, which you can see remade virtually um, black over a 30 year period. So it's called, he uses a virtual oilstick crayon, which is a little bit silly, I suppose. But, um, and he works on a, a one square meter each day. And over, as I said, 30 years, he will eventually paint the entire structure black. So it becomes like a silhouette on the landscape. But after a few years, he needs to bring out this special um, forklift thing which we had to build for him and all these different complications which meant it took a year and a half to make this piece and it was uh, first shown in a very nice small show in Thomas in Simon Preston well actually quite a big show in a way and that's the show which uh, Kelly Gordon saw and which um, initiated the conversation with the Hirshhorn um, and this work will and I'll talk about this in a little bit be installed in London quite soon uh, for a year a full year um, it was also central to the project in Venice, um, which was called Animated Scene. This is the facade we built on a boat shed in on the island of Certosa. And we, um, I have to put this in because Kelly likes it so much and was so disappointed that I didn't bring it here. But I also spent a year developing a wind tower with an industrial designer in Vienna, which powered a water station, which chilled water for people on arrival. Because I felt that, you know, if we speak about these subjects of sort of energy and, 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 and these sort of things, we have to do something which uses a local resource such as wind. So we made this beautiful wind tower, which is um, now in a field in Vienna, a little underutilized. But in Venice, it, it just turned very slowly in the light wind and, and powered a, a refrigerator. Um, and it's a project that is on hold, but I will get to again. And this is called a hyperboloid structure. And this particular structure that can take wind from any direction. So inside this enormous shed, um, which was found for me by the curator of the project, who was Jasper Sharp, we installed the oilstick work at the end and the grow finish unit in the middle. And on arrival, you had the dust storm, three very, very large project, uh, projections. And here you see them sort of in relationship to one another. And this is, I think, 700 square meter space, so it's a really a very large space. This is a dust storm with no storm in the view. Um, and because, I suppose, in a sense, we were showing such deathly scenes or such kind of, I suppose, denatured scenes, I came across, on the island of Certosa, I came across this wonderful cloister, this 14th century cloister. And uh, in the centre was this tree, almost like a sentry, sort of waiting for us. So I begged the island if I could use it for something that would counterbalance this sort of very, it's almost deathly um, kind of uh, scenes, these sort of very um, virtual, you know, the virtual, the sense of sort of, something that had to be kind of real and lifelike to counterbalance this sort of very kind of cold show or exhibition. So after much toing and froing, um, we were allowed to renovate, allowed to renovate this space at enormous cost. And we um, brought, it was an old monastery, so we brought long tables from Vienna. And I worked for about six months with Slow Food Venice to develop a menu which would sort of be, the commission was to make, find food that was ready at that exact moment and which would just be very present. You know, a tomato that was just absolutely ready at that moment and could be nothing else but just this perfect tomato. And we had a wonderful dinner. This is the cloister and we put these little lights on the way down. We had a wonderful dinner for 100 people. And um, it's actually where the, um, 
this Hirschhorn project was announced, which, which is a nice thing as well. Uh, but it was very important because, in a sense, for me, it was a forum. It was very much the sense that it was a place where people could potentially discuss alternatives to what they had just experienced in the exhibition, and also eat food that had been uh, raised very gently and very carefully. Um, so the Venice project was, to put it mildly, um, a year of hell, which ended well, but it took me quite some time to recover from. Doing a project in Venice is not something you approach lightly, particularly in a credit crunch. Um, but we got there, and I left a few days after Venice finished for Cuba, which I've had a long-standing interest in Cuba, particularly in, its, um, it, in the strategies that they've put in place post the withdrawal of, of Soviet oil. Um, politically, Cuba stinks, but just socially, on the ground, culturally, it's very interesting. It's also a very tragic place um, in terms of humans, people's lives. And these are a series of photographs I took of men um, who were selling food on the side of the road that week. I spent 10 days in Cuba. And um, they're dressed in army fatigues because it's an illicit activity. If you're caught selling food without the license, you're put in jail for three years. And I thought that these figures had this curious heroic quality, that they were sort of post-doctrine or post-ideology. And in the end, it all is about how we sustain ourselves. You know, this is like a kind of sweet corn statue of liberty in a funny way. And, you know, if they do, if the police arrive, and they do arrive, they drop this food and they run through the brush. Like, you know, they just are terrified because three years in a Cuban jail is, you would not want to experience it. But I was able to negotiate to buy the food and also to take these portraits. And this man is selling butter. And I really like this series of portraits. And I haven't showed them yet. This is one of the few times I've actually displayed them. Um, and um, they cover their faces because they have to maintain anonymity because it's an illegal activity. And uh, this is nougat. So it's like a little red book or something. Um, but these are exactly as they were. This is unposed. And I think they have this curious theatrical quality, which I also quite like. Also, you have to notice the empty rows, which is, once again, to do with energy poverty, um, or energy reality, in a sense. So, um, and also on the same landscape, um, I came across an extraordinary structure, um, which was a school, um, which was based on a modular Russian design and built in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, but once again, this idea of a fully functioning ruin, um, in that it had been completely unmaintained, but it um, actually was. Um, um, full of children. There's about 70 children who live here. You can see some of them sort of peering out by the stairs there as I'm working, as I'm taking pictures. And in a sense, slightly blindly, you know, I work, I move across the landscape, I come across things, I document them, and then I develop them into works. What I did was I took thousands of pictures, brought them back to Vienna, and this is the next really big step in this, in this body of work, this idea of the animated scenes in a way. It doesn't, in a, in a sense, it, 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 I think it extends the discussion about energy, which, which began on the American landscape. But this is much more to do with um, resilience than it has to do with abundance. So, so once again, the modeler gets going, begins to build this structure. And I want to give, particularly for the audience in the Hirschhorn, I want to give an entry point into the fabrication of the work. So this is, uh, you know, a step, and we have to build it and then put the put the photographic texture on top, and then model. You know, all of this is modeled. This is modeled. It's a really it's a very dense process to make these works. 
Um, and as you can see, this is within a couple of weeks, we're beginning to get places and, you know, these structures which are where the, where the wooden slats blew out, they replaced them with these cement structures. And each one of these has to be unique because really it's a portrait of this place. So we begin to try and develop strategies to, to replicate all these cement structures. Um, and this is one of them. So, and just to give you an idea of sort of what we do to make the works. Um, and this is it a couple of months later, still an awfully long way from being finished. Uh, but you get a sense of, 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 of how the work will function. And, and once again, I think this will be a very simple work. There'll be a camera that moves at walking pace around it. And it'll be shown with Simon Preston in November. Oops, I have to go backwards. Um, I actually have a little film that I want to show you, but I can't show you in this software because there's not the right plugins on this computer. So I'm fracturing the beauty of this presentation. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, here we go. Um, no, that's not going to work. I have to open this another way. Okay, everybody close your eyes. <laughs> I hate this. God, I can't believe it. I'm going to kill you, Ron. Um, okay, here we go. Um, okay, so um, what you can see here is the modeler will send me these grabs of this work. So you get a sense of, of the object. The, the building is now done and we move to the landscape. And that's another six months work. Uh, or maybe not even six months. It'll be shown in November. So, so you get a sense of, of, um, of how this is developing and also how I develop a relationship with the object. Um, and I'm really excited about this piece. I think it's a good step. Okay, you all have to close your eyes again. And um, okay. Um, so, what else? Um, one of the outcomes from Venice was I made the decision that this emphasis about food was uh, interesting. So I purchased uh, two old fur shops in the center of Vienna. And I worked with an Irish architect called Peter Carroll, uh, who's actually standing there. And we did a very comprehensive renovation on, um, on this space. It's called Lokaiplatz 3. And it's a kitchen and an art space and a production space for the four people who I work with. And this is uh, one end of it. And um, this is the other end with the kitchen to the right. It's very formal, very simple. It follows a kind of a gallery aesthetic, but it's, 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 it's a place where we can run food projects four times a year. And by that I mean I collaborate with a group called AO Und, who's an artist group in Vienna who cook. And they do quarterly residencies in this space. And um, they have this list of, of rules, which is plants and animals of the season, elements of disclosed origin, which means they know where everything has come from. Um, they mine their own salt and they boil down their own sugar from apple juice and this kind of thing. And uh, the way it's structured is we do the first um, night is for me and people I invite, uh, curators and, and people who are interested. And then the next six nights is for the public. So people come and, and, and pay to eat 
uh, pay these guys to eat there. So, and we also install artworks in the space. This is a, a work, uh, the, the apple tree is an artwork by Klaus Mossetig, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a minute. And this table is actually made from um, trees that I found on the island of Certosa in Venice. And it's called Fallen Log Table, and it's a work. And the chairs are actually based on a chair I saw in Cuba, and it's called Cuban Chair. <laughs> um, I don't go for complicated titles. Um, and they, they developed these multiple small courses. This is, this is venison. And, um, and it's, it's really quite extraordinary, actually, what they do. Um, and I'd recommend that you all come. So you're all invited to Vienna uh, to dinner in Lokalplatz 3. Um, and this is the first dinner, actually. And this is a group of interesting people who came to that. And, um, except for me. And uh, this is the most recent one, which has just closed. And this is uh, Klaus Mossetig's work. Which is, uh, what he does is he takes apple trees and he grafts them cruelly to each other. So each one has about maybe up to 50 or 60 grafts. And they're all from different apple trees. And they get grafted to themselves. And it's really about manipulation. And on the other side of the room, I showed Grow Finish Unit as a small projection. And so as I said, the next residency will be um, in summer. And this is them doing the food for, for, for the other night. So you get a sense of how it works. So the piece, the Oystick work piece, which you just saw, um, will be installed uh, in a wonderful place in London, which is Norman Foster's um, Canary Wharf tube station. And in Venice, a curator from Art in the Underground, a woman called Sally Shaw, saw it and asked me if I would bring it to the heart of the city, the financial city of London, and install it for a year um, there. And I said, Absolutely. Um, and Barco, the projector company, have just given us these two enormous 18,000 lumen projectors to make 36,000 lumens, which makes the project possible. And this is a big 12 meter by 8 meter wall, which is really enormous. I mean, it's basically the size of a house. And you have our little oil stick worker um, blackening out this structure over 12 months from April 18th to April 18th. And um, there's a 45 million person audience that travels through each year through the station, mostly working in financial services. So it's a kind of a curious mirror in a way, um, in that you've got a, a virtual man doing a type of real labor down in the underground. And upstairs, you've got these real guys doing virtual speculation. And I thought it was interesting to link through the virtual to link this idea of transformation, you know, that this guy works over 30 years, he arrives at dawn, leaves at dusk six days a week, he doesn't work Sundays, um, and um, he just slowly but surely, kind of in a sense, it's a memorial in progress, and it's, it's a little, um, my feelings about it were quite ambivalent, because this scene is my scene, it's my century in a way, and it's coming to a close, and many things are drawing to a close, many components of that century are drawing to a close, particularly to do with energy wealth, um, is definitely drawing to a close over the next 30 years. And what we put in place over the next 30 years to replace it is at this time anybody's guess um, <laughs> on the subject. Um, this is uh, a work which may or may not come to pass, but I thought it was a good one to end with. And it's an oil fire um, um, 
taken from Abadan, but it's actually in Kuwait during the first Gulf War. And it's two oil refineries which are, have caught fire and they make these towers of smoke that make the single cloud. And last year I traveled to Iran to document this landscape and it is potentially post the Cuban school, the work which will come next. And I think it's funny, it's got a curious reminiscence of the Twin Towers and you know, this is 1989 I think. I, I don't know the exact date, but it's, you know, it's quite some time ago. And I just like the idea of images which are online, which are just almost glimpsed online, being resurrected and remade as sculptures and objects and placed back into society so they're not forgotten. And this is an image which I think has a real resonance that in a sense suggests that it is worthy of, of, of pursuing. Um, and sort of in a selfish way, I also know I can do it really nicely because <laughs> I've got all that kind of smoke tree stuff um, and the dust storms. So that's just me being sort of selfish. But um, I think it's an interesting piece. And um, I actually am under an hour, so I'm going to be scolded by Kelly, but I am finished. So thank you. And if I, I'm very amenable to answering questions. Hmm. Uh, you, you mentioned sculpture several times in your, in your discussion of your work. I, I wonder what your feelings are about painting itself. There's one piece, obviously, that, that references painting directly. But it seems that your process, uh, by, by uh, sort of finding these images or textures and applying them to these surfaces and these models, uh, has a very sort of painterly aspect. Sure. Um, it's an incredibly painterly process because you, uh, I mean, nothing fits, nothing really works. It has to be extensively manipulated. And you are, in the end, making a pictorial surface in real terms. I mean, it's a curious thing because it does have a sculptural component because you can walk around it or move around it as, a, as an object. But in the end, it is a sort of painterly representation of reality. So, I mean, you could, I could just as, as plausibly say they're paintings, they're sculptures, in a way. But I guess I trained as a sculptor. My undergraduate was as a sculptor, so I'm coming from a kind of sculptural uh, history, in a way. Yeah? Talk about your experience with the, the subjects that you choose. There's probably others that you've seen, and you were saying that's close, but not quite it. For instance, this example, I'm sure you saw the wells, which you chose one that had some color on it, some of the things. I guess you know where that's coming from, whether... Decision-making? Well, well, most of these, the pumps that I choose are... Oh, sorry. Um, most of the pumps that I choose are brand new, which is funny, because they have a kind of... They have a slightly virtual feel in and of themselves when you come across them on the landscape. And actually, most of those core finish units are brand new. You know, they have this extraordinary um, freshness. You know, they've just been constructed in the last... I mean, this was actually so new that when we looked in Google Earth, it wasn't there. You know, it had been built since they took those pictures. So I think that's something I look for, is like the very new on the landscape, um, perhaps. But um, I mean, I really work as a photographer. My, I've worked very extensively as a photographer for many, many, many years, and I, and I showed a, a wide body of photography in this discussion on purpose, just to kind of show that that's, I, I, I think of photography as sort of working drawings. So, you know, these are images first and then they, you know, get built up. So, yeah, I, guess, I guess my photographer's eye is what catches sight of them first before anything else. That fits with the, this and the silos, but the building in Cuba was obviously the, the older buildings. 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So it's a. I guess that rule doesn't apply there. But uh, uh, but it, the landscape's new. No, I'm joking. No, the piece is independent of, um, it's independent, it, it, it doesn't really care about the human presence, essentially. It has its own trajectory. It began in 2008. It'll finish in 3008. So essentially, the piece is embedded in time, and time is embedded in it. So as it starts, it has to know what time it is and what date it is. And you can trick it, in a way, within certain parameters by changing the date. But we put kind of limits on that so that people couldn't really trick it. Um, but yeah, it comes up, it starts, and he just emerges at the point at which he is. He can't, he, doesn't, he never stops, he always works on. Yeah. Hi, um, I was just wondering, how do you manage such large amounts of data? And um, have you ever thought about incorporating audio into your works? Um, I manage lots of data through having a very good producer um, and spending about five years developing an archive and developing a sort of a platform for production which is quite formal. I'm actually going to talk about it tomorrow. Uh, Jeff Martin who has sort of facilitated the colloquium here on moving image. Uh, the conservation of moving image has asked me to talk a little bit about how these works are conserved which is a whole nother our long lecture, basically. But um, yeah, I mean, we're just very diligent and we have to plan for conservation now. So we archive everything very formally. Um, and we have, it's all, I mean, in a sense, I'm kind of preparing for handover because, you know, it all has to be ready to be handed to um, an institution or a foundation at some point, or else it's just simply, I mean, I'm not going to be able to do it for much longer. So, so we've kind of built that in from the offset. Uh, one of the very earliest works was a piece called Thousand Year Dawn, and it will finish in 3005. So that's a piece, I mean, if you make that piece, if you have any sort of expectation that it'll function you have to build in both very good data management and very good conservation strategies right from the offset. So, audio. Um, you know, I think that's perhaps the photographic kind of creeping in, in a way. You know, it's sort of like these scenes. I've never felt any urge to bring in audio. They're just sort of very. They just kind of find the way they are, and also audio. Unless it's incredibly good, it's just sort of meaningless so often. You know, those kind of whooshing noises that half the multimedia installations you come across have, you know, like... <laughs> and you're sort of going, why is that there? And in a way, these works are placed in the world. You know, they're, they, they're, they're, they're placed extensively in, in private collections. And I love them in those settings where they speak on, beyond my exhibition profiles or, you know, I have lots of people who live with these pieces. And in that light, I like that they are not dominant. They just, you know, do their thing. Uh, rather, unfortunately, uh, members of the oil exploration community seem to really enjoy these pieces. <laughs> but you know, I don't mind because, you know, it's like a virtual oil pump in the, in, in the home of a, a kind of an oil millionaire is kind of rich in a kind of curious way. But uh, anyway, it's part of the reason, not, that's not why they're silent, but it's actually um, part of, of uh, the reason 
that I don't mind them not being silent, you know. Yeah? Yes. Uh, I have never had so many questions in my whole life. <laughs> Do. Anyone in the Shoot. It is an uncomfortable question, but the context is like Don Judd used fabricators very openly with his work. And you haven't named your collaborators or I haven't. Well, I don't remember. I did. Sorry. Dan Felsner. Okay. Helmut Bressler. Yeah. Werner Putzelberger. But their names don't appear on the work, and that's what I'm going at. I just wanted to know how you. They actually typically do. I'm very strict about it. Yeah. No, it is there. Basically, I use a film production model, and they are very specifically credited. Um, actually, it is very unlike me. I, I, today was slightly disastrous finalizing this lecture, but normally I actually do have the credits on the uh, in every context. So. So it's a different model, not so much an art. I mean, I I um. I work with people who um, don't consider themselves to be artists, yeah. but they are very skilled in what they do. You know, they are really sort of, I don't know, certainly I would never describe them as technicians. They are, you know, professionals and, you know, it's producer, modeler, programmer, and they get very precisely credited in essentially every setting. In, in, in Thomas Dane on the wall text, you have the title of the work and the, you know, all the, all the credits. So it's like a, a film in a sense. So I don't feel any way uncomfortable. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I just was, it, it's, um, it comes up for many artists, and sure. your work is so ambitious. I, I yeah. uh, was glad that you did describe the process in such sure. a way. Sure, sure. I mean, I came to the conclusion that to make anything ambitious, I had to both facilitate and resource a collaborative scene. And that's something art schools aren't doing, actually, which I think is kind of interesting. I had to go through a computer science environment and then a new media research environment to be equipped to make this kind of work. The studio-based model in the art school uh, equipped me to think and to be critical, but it didn't equip me to um, manage a, a group of producers. Yes. Wondering about the possibility for interactivity. Yeah. For allowing the user to actually move around the space. It seems really interesting. And I think, relatedly, I know that if I were able to move through it, I would want to get up really close. Sure. It's really interesting that you keep people at this increasing distance from all of your incredible details. Yeah. Well, I made a couple of discoveries. One was that if the details aren't there, the work doesn't function. You know, it just fails. And it sort of resides in the realm of the naive. And you can feel it. Even if you can't see the details, they sort of, they somehow are present. But I have no real interest in allowing, you know, these are games. These are virtual games. And I have no real interest in empowering the public to kind of swoop around them. Because that's what they're very familiar, that level of influence is what they're familiar with. Uh, so they're very formal, you know. I maintain a very strong level of control over the frame, and each moment, you know, it would normally never move this fast, but each of these moments is actually very formally considered, and um, I'm not willing to sacrifice that 
uh, at all. Um, but you are able to walk around it using the objects by turning the screen to the left or to the right and or facing it forward. And normally you would be able to do that upstairs, but the Hirshhorn had uh, conservation issues and worries, which I reject actually. I'd much prefer if the public had some ability to insinuate themselves in the work. But that, I got nowhere with that one. In demonstration. In demonstration. Also in a oil stick where you lit the floor and there was a... Yeah, exactly. I don't think that you described that. that you okay. So actually that's something that's been shed. But in the earlier installations, there was a, a light square on the floor. And if you stood into it, you could move around the work. So to switch it on, the turn. You stepped out, you switched it off. But that's actually been lost. I've, I've, I've shed that as I've developed the work. Um, yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, interaction. Uh, in a way, I like the idea of completely disempowering the audience, you know, just that this is just going to unfold, you know, like the year unfolds and the sun travels around and you just experience it. So, but, um, yeah. I have a question um, also relating to sort of artist paradigm. Would you say that your sketchbook is a list with information and ideas, or is it something that you draw in, or is it a computer? Um, I can actually answer it quite efficiently. Um, it is a little book and you know I do very bad drawings in it and I also take photographs. So you know it's kind of images and little stick drawings and notes, scrawled notes. But yeah, it's quite physical, you know, and um, and it's also, in a way, it's just about moving across the landscape. You know, I don't really work in a studio. You know, I have a production space, but it is very much about just being exposed to the real, and that's sort of that is the key studio in a way. So um, yeah, but a little notebook accompanies me wherever I go, unless I, I frequently lose them. Those brilliant ideas just gone. Yeah. Sorry. The length? Yeah. You mean the duration, basically? Yeah. Well, in a sense. The works have trajectories within them that unfold over periods of time, but they simply orbit. I mean, when the oil stick work, when he finishes painting that building in 2038, he finishes at dusk and leaves, I think it's June something, 2038, and the work is, continues. I mean, it doesn't stop. It just is now this sort of void on the landscape, but he, he never comes back. He's done and he's finished and he leaves. Uh, so in a sense, it doesn't really have a duration. It's an open scene. It's like a, um, a world that just unfolds as long as it's fed and maintained and you know, powered. Um, but it, I guess a 30-year trajectory is kind of a human trajectory. It's kind of like a working life in a way. And a thousand year, of course, is, is a Christian notion. It's millennial. Um, and these are things that we can understand. You know, We have no real relationship to a million years even. It's kind of essentially abstract. But a hundred, thirty, a thousand, that's plausible. That's our human timescales. And I suppose I play with that. But you know, in real terms, this piece, you know, the camera will continue orbiting. It'll continue pumping for as long as it's maintained. Um, it doesn't end at any point. 
And that's the whole real-time thing, that sort of orbital post-cinematic thing in a way. So maybe two more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Just why or? Um, I'm not sure I totally understand, but I can talk just about my approach to the idea of the orbit. I mean, essentially, in a sense, the one thing that is fundamentally real is the solar orbit. You know, many different things will occur on that orbit, but it'll always be the same, you know, until, you know, I don't know, the sun burns out or whatever. And these orbits are quite similar in a way that, you know, different things occur. You know, that truck arrives on an eight-month orbit of its own, but I don't know when it's going to happen, you know, in that eight-month cycle. So I suppose it's like the orbit is the new timeline in a way, because it's sort of, it's not a fixed trajectory. It's a, a sort of a scrolling set of behaviors which unfold in a way that we, you don't know, but you know, one thing you do know is that, you know, that it'll, you know, it'll keep unfolding. Uh, I'm not making perfect sense. But, um, and then of course you've got the human orbit, which is walking, you know, just walking around this scene, which is an important reference, you know, the idea that you can actually physically walk around. I mean, this is, this is not calibrated properly. You would never be able to move this fast, but, you know, you'd walk around, you know, at sort of walking pace. Um, ooh, I have to stop it. Um, I don't know, I'm not doing well on orbit, sorry. <laughs> But it's very important. It's kind of a thing that I've really kind of collided with in relationship to this medium, you know, these worlds which I work in. I mean, I think a good way to think, sorry, one second. I think, I think a good way to think about the medium is you have a two-dimensional image which is then laid flat and becomes a stage. I mean, the medium is very theatrical in a sense and things unfold upon it and, you know, but they don't have to end. So then you immediately, I connect it to the solar orbit. I mean, it, you could have the same thing happening for a million years if you wanted. I mean, other artists will do other things, but I think for me the natural orbit is kind of key to the works. Sorry. Yeah. You mean where it's going to physically end, or? Um, well, the works are in editions of six, and um, as I said, a large number of them are in private collections, and um, increasingly they're going into public collections. So um, where they physically end up doesn't really matter. What's interesting is that they are sustained. That's the only reason I would do that. Because, you know, out of six, if one or two makes it through and continues to run, then you've got somewhere in a way, you're still speaking, or it's still speaking. Um, and you know, I don't know, it's interesting for the Hirshhorn to acquire work because I suddenly begin to talk at a very different level about conservation than you would pretty much anybody else. And that's something that's very encouraging because it suggests that the works can continue to function because it's been taken very seriously. Um, the immortal question from Kelly Gordon was, what's going to happen when you're dead? <laughs> Which is, um, which is always a good question for an artist. <laughs> What's going to happen when you're dead? Um, so I think I need a t-shirt for all the people who work in my studio. I uh, work with me in my studio. 
Um, I mean, I know exactly what it looks like because, you know, I'm this kind of godlike figure in there. Um, and I made it, you know, and I made all the decisions. But I will say that um, we used a motion. One of the, one of the tragic DLL victims, um, dot, you know, the sort of plug-in victims, was a film of a motion scanning session in Vienna because we used a motion scan suit for the actor, Angela Martinez, in Old Stick Work. And he had about 250 actions scanned, which were then embedded in the work. So Angelo chooses, almost like an alphabet, his own actions over the day. So I don't know what's going to happen over the day. I know he's going to just do that little black square, but he does it in ways I don't expect because he makes his own decisions using a kind of artificial intelligence system. So in a sense, I mean, I know he's going to paint that whole building black, but how he's going to exactly do it, I don't know. But I mean, I hope, what, I'm 35 now, so in, I'll be 65 when he's done. So I mean, that's not unreasonable. So I would hope perhaps I'll see it. And uh, we actually hold one of the edition now for an institution because five of them are in private collections, which is a little dubious. So the sixth one we're being very strict about of the Austic work because I really would like to see it installed somewhere where I will see it at age 65 <laughs> on my, you know, I'll be pretty healthy at 65, I think. Yeah. I was going to say walking sticks, and I could see people getting offended. Um, <laughs> yes? So, my question for this piece, for example, is that you know, we make a lot of references to Google Maps, calendars, times, like a year. But eventually, I would assume that this well is a little bit dry. Corporation may come with this map, this Sure. So have you thought about incorporating that time lapse or evolution into the work? Um, no, uh, is the short answer. But uh, I mean, what you're seeing here is a moment in time. This is essentially, you know, April 15th, 2009 or 8, I can't quite remember. And it's then placed into an orbit of a year, the sun, you know. But it's all obviously synthetic. But it's an intersection between a type of a photographic millisecond in time, which is as, I mean, the, the, the grass doesn't grow in here, and you know, the snow doesn't fall, and there's a lot left out. I mean, you could put all that in. But it's a moment in time that's then just placed in an orbit of a year. So it is really a, mo a portrait of a moment. And they can do whatever they want, because I've just got this and I'm perfectly happy. So I don't need for it to be connected to anything in a way. It's funny, actually, in that article in the Sunday Times, they made a mistake, which I was really kind of annoyed about, because um, uh, the pumps, and I didn't know this, but the pumps speed up when the oil prices rise and slow down when they drop. And that's all controlled by these companies, Lufkin being one of them. Um, but my pumps don't do that, you know. I mean, they don't have that whole media thing of like stock market connection or something. Um, and they really don't need it. But the guy kind of made a mistake. He didn't make many mistakes in that article. It's a guy called Brian Appleyard. If anybody wants to read, meet, read the article, you Google Brian Appleyard and John Jarrett and you'll get it. It's actually a very good piece of writing. But yeah, I mean, the pieces are really of this time and of this moment and they document the now and I have no interest in things changing. That's a portrait of now. So, But it's, not, it's plausible for another artist to do it. Well, the dust, the dust storm is unusual 
So a dust storm is unusual in that it's a historical amalgam. You've got a historical dust storm remade as a sculpture, placed on the landscape as it is today. And that's a moment in time, that landscape as it is right now. So they're just brought together. And the idea of a storm as a sculpture, I think it's kind of an interesting thing. And I haven't really developed it very far, but I think other artists will approach it. I mean, this medium is fiendishly difficult to do anything in and to do anything in that looks in any way interesting. But I think people will kind of get there. I mean, I have, I'm a little bit on my own with it in a sense. There's a game art category, which is quite established. But this kind of thing, I'm sort of, there's not seen very much similar work. And I think other artists will take it, like, obviously wildly different directions, but I'm very much linked to the real. It was, uh, well, sculpture, but art and technology. You know, that was it. People are leaving. I have to stop. <laughs> <laughs>